Hey, we want to thank you for listening today to a sermon from Edwards Lake Church. And we hope that you recognize the message of God as we open his word together and examine his incredible life-changing teaching. We pray that this message will challenge you, motivate you, or touch you in some way. Let's open the Bible together. I appreciate Rex's praying for my uh, not feeling wonderful today. Uh, as you can tell, I'm not singing tenor today. So uh, if you will uh, bear with me today as we jump into our lesson. Uh, before we jump into our lesson, as we did a couple of weeks ago, I'm going to ask Con and Drake to hand out the little survey slips of paper. Uh, so make sure you get one of these. Uh, for those who weren't here a couple of weeks ago, basically this is just a... You know, give me your opinion of, this one is on prayer, but give me your opinion on how well you do in prayer. And then uh, there's a little short answer question on the bottom. Fill it out, fold it up, stick it in the box that is outside my office. Uh, this is going to be used to help me in crafting together what sermons and where I'll be focusing my time and attention next year. Uh, so it is very helpful to me to get your feedback. I really appreciated reading through some of the comments and suggestions that uh, many of y'all had regarding our sermons and biblical knowledge and, and those types of things. So uh, I look forward to reading uh, what you have to uh, say about prayer and those types of things too. So uh, thank you to Drake and Con for handing this out and thank you to you for filling those out for me. <clears throat> Uh, while they do that, I'm going to go ahead and start on a passage of Scripture. I want to read the beginning of Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. <clears throat> now the serpent was the more cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the fruit of the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat or touch it or you will die. No, you will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was good for food, delightful to look at, and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Today I want to spend a few moments with you talking about mastering temptations. It is a a reality that each one of us faces. And probably, if, if maybe your experience has been like mine, we tend to face them in waves. It seems that some days are more difficult than other days, or some seasons are more difficult than other seasons. We struggle oftentimes with how to handle temptations. So I thought we'd spend some time talking about this fairly fundamental and, and simple concept, but hopefully ending with some practical steps we can take as we try to face temptations in the world today. You know, Adam and Eve are the first 
and, and again, this is arguable, but the first people that faced temptation. Uh, and they followed the pattern that you read over in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 through 17, which talked about uh, that we are tempted with the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. That seems to be the age-old trick that the devil has used since the beginning of time and still uses today. And it is the very same tricks that he used on Jesus, which hopefully uh, all of us have looked at the temptations of Jesus from Luke chapter 4, uh, just very recently in our Bible classes, and similar story over in Matthew chapter 4, where Jesus is led out in the wilderness by the Spirit so that he might be tempted by the devil, and the devil does tempt him, tempts him with the lust of the flesh and turning the bread or the stones into bread, and tempts him with the lust of the eyes and the pride of life with the concept of bowing down to the devil and receiving the kingdoms of God without having to work for the kingdoms of God, without having to do the work that God had sent him to do, or throwing himself down from the pinnacle of the temple and being, being uh, rescued by the angels as God proclaimed would happen according to prophecy, according to the devil. And, of course, that would have been tempting for Jesus because it would have revealed him as the Son of God. It would have revealed him as the Messiah. And it was a way of seeing the, the plan of God uh, and saving him a lot of difficulty and a lot of struggle and maybe even saving him the cross. But, of course, we know that Jesus didn't give in to those temptations, and he quoted from the book of Deuteronomy and, and gave answers to the devil as to why he couldn't do the three things that the devil tempted him to do, or at least that are revealed for us in the text. You find temptations when you really dig into them and try to understand how they work. You've got a great pattern revealed over in James chapter 1. So turn with me there, James chapter 1. James chapter 1, I want to read verse 14 and 15. Here in this very practical book, James gives us a pretty easy-to-follow pattern. It says, But each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. Ultimately, what you have presented for us in this passage is that temptations come from the joining of two things. You have some desire... And then you have an opportunity to fulfill that desire. Uh, that desire might be to, uh, we, somebody used the illustration in Bible class this morning of stealing. So the desire might be to fill your belly. So you go to the grocery store and there sitting on the, on the racks or the shelves are your favorite kind of chips and you don't have any money with you. And so your desire is to feed your belly. The opportunity is to take that bag of chips and walk out of the store with it, to steal it. Um, if you're not hungry, or maybe you despise that type of chips, you're not going to want to be tempted to take them. Or if you've got a manager standing right next to you, following you around because you look like one of those seedy characters, then you're not going to have a temptation to steal. But when you take a desire to have something that you have not purchased in this case, and you take the opportunity, nobody's watching, you could just grab that bag of chips and go, well, now you have a temptation. 
you eliminate either one of those, the desire or the opportunity, well then you no longer have a temptation. We'll talk about that more at the end. James goes on to say that temptation, when you couple it with action, that is what actually leads to sin. You know, temptation itself is not sinful. But when you give in to the temptation, now you have turned what was just a desire and an opportunity into the actual act of sin. And that sin, once you couple it with more sin, it gives birth, it, it, it grows, it matures. Well, now you have death. And so James is teaching us here that the way to avoid death is to avoid sin. The way to avoid sin is to avoid temptation. The way to avoid temptation is to get rid of the lust or the opportunity. And we'll, again, talk about that more in a second. The, the way I want to go about talking about this this morning, though, is to look at an example of David. Uh, actually, two examples from the life of David. And one is probably the very obvious example that we often turn to when we think about the life of David, which is his temptation to sin with Bathsheba. And we've talked about this story many times. Uh, here, David is, is, is confronted with an opportunity to sin. And depending on which scholar you're listening to, it might have been more than an accident that he is tempted with this sin. Uh, there are some scholars who place some of the blame on Bathsheba. There are some who place more on David himself. And I tend to be one who does the latter. Uh, I think David was tempted with lust because David gave himself the opportunity for lust. Now turn with me back to 1 Samuel. In this... Excuse me, 2 Samuel. Let me get you in the right book, then we'll get you to the right chapter. Over in 2 Samuel chapter 7, you've got this story of David who has given a covenant with God. And God basically says to David from that moment, I am going to bless you. This throne will never leave your home. You will forever have a descendant on the throne of the house of, of God's kingdom and you've got this great blessing. And from there on, we start to see some problems with David. And one of the first major problems we find is over in 2 Samuel chapter 11. It begins with this statement. In the spring, when kings march out to war, David sent Joab with his officers and all Israel. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. Now, do you notice the beginning there? When kings march out to war, but King David is at home. That's the problem. That's that the number one mistake that David makes. David is not where David is supposed to be. David, as the commander-in-chief, as we would often think of it, he is the general, he's the king, he's the one who is to oversee the war efforts. He's the one who was supposed to be at the head of his army. He is supposed to be there leading his people, but he's not. He's at home. He's at home when he's supposed to be away from home. 
And so David is there where he's not supposed to be. Verse 2, one evening David got up from his bed and strolled around on the roof of the palace. From the roof he saw a woman bathing, a very beautiful woman. So David sent someone to inquire about her, and he said, Isn't this Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hethite? So now we've got David who is up on the roof, and he is looking over the edges, and he sees what would not have been an uncommon thing to see. Uh, they did not have bath houses the way that we think of them in their homes. In many places, they didn't even have bath houses and where there was some sort of discretion, they would go outside and they would bathe, as was their custom. And generally speaking, there was a, 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 some privacy that is afforded to people because they would bathe uh, up in a place where there wouldn't be other people. But when you've got a palace that oversees everything, David sees anything he wants to see. Well, David is up there at a time when the women would be out bathing, and I kind of wonder if that wasn't intentional. He is up there, and he overlooks and sees a beautiful woman bathing, and he asked, who is this woman? And I, I've always wondered why he asked that question. Um, the reason I, I wonder is he would have known who lived in that house. This was one of his mighty men. This was one of the men who traveled with him and fought for him and defended him for years while he was on the run from Saul. This was one of his most trusted soldiers. This would have been somebody who would have had high ranking of some sort among his army. It was a man he knew and he knew personally. He would have known who lived in that house. He would have, I would suspect, have known not only the man, but known the man's wife, because we know that she had other connections to David, like uh, her grandfather was David's right-hand advisor named Ahithophel, who he was, he was the, the counselor that David went to when he needed advice. And so we have not only one of David's mighty men, we have the granddaughter of one of David's most trusted men, and David would have known where they lived. But he looks over, and he sees her bathing at a time when you would have expected her to be bathing. And he says, well, who is this fine lady? And the servant says, um, you know who this is. Now, he didn't say it in those words, but he says, notice the connection. Isn't this Bathsheba? The servant knows who it is. The servant is familiar with this woman. The servant knew her by name. And not because she was also some lowly servant, but because she was well-known. Isn't this Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam, who you know, the wife of Uriah, the Hethite, whom you know? There's a lot of implications in this answer. Verse 4, David sent messengers to get her. When she came to him, he slept with her. Now, she had been, just been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Afterwards, she returned home. The woman conceived and sent word to inform David, I am pregnant. Now, some understand the statement there that it says she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness to be a reference to 
her womanly cycles. Which means that it's possible the implication there is that she should not have been able to get pregnant. But God allows it to happen. There are so many times in this story, especially as you move on and you see, she comes to David and she says, I'm pregnant. So he brings her husband home so that he might know her, so that they would believe that this child, or at least he, would believe that this child she has is his own child. But of course, that doesn't work out in his favor because he's too loyal to his fellow soldiers. And ultimately, David tries to hide his guilt by having her husband killed and then bringing her into his own home. Ultimately, by the end, thank God, David confesses his guilt. But as you look at this story of temptation, what you find is the story begins with David not being in the right place. He's not where he should be. He's not living the life he should be living. He's not being responsible to the jobs and the duties he had to his people and to his God. He's in the wrong place because he has chosen to not be in the right place. And then it seems possibly the implication is that he is choosing to be in the wrong place. It's not just that he's not away at war where he should be, but he is up on the rooftop when he shouldn't be. And yet he's up there looking for opportunities to lust. He's flirting with temptation. And through flirting, he eventually falls, and who knows? Uh, you, You see just how far somebody can fall, even a man like David when they flirt with temptation. There's another story of David that follows after a few chapters. If you look at chapter 13, you've got the story of Amnon, one of David's son, who ends up raping his half-sister named Tamar. Well, that's bad, and and of course, that's a tragic story and something we hate to read about and something we know is a reality for too many people in our world today. But what makes the story bad for David is that David, it says in verse 21, was furious. But he does nothing about it. He's angry. He has the right emotional response, but he doesn't have the right practical response. He should have punished Amnon. He should have brought Amnon before the court. He should have had Amnon killed because Amnon was guilty of a sin that had, as its consequence, capital punishment. But David doesn't do any of that. Now, David would have known these laws. Uh, David, being a king of Israel, would have read the law. He would have actually have written out the law by his own hand so that he would have been familiar with statutes and the judgment. The same David that talks in the Psalms about how much he loves the law of God and he dwells in the law of God day and night. He was a man who was familiar with what should have happened when it came to his family. What should have happened doesn't happen. 
If you keep reading, you've got the story of Absalom, who is the full brother of Tamar, who decides if David's not going to do anything, he would, and he kills Amnon. And it says there in verse 37, David mourned for his son, talking about Amnon, every day. But still, he does nothing. He has an emotional response to his son's sin, both Amnon and Absalom's sin, but he does nothing. You read on, verse 38, after Absalom had fled to Geshur and had been there three years, David longed to go to Absalom, for David had finished grieving over Amnon's death. But you know what he does? Nothing. He does nothing. You know, sometimes I think we go wrong when we think about temptation because we think only about the temptation to do wrong thing. But we are just as often, if not more often, tempted to not do the right thing, to fail to do what we know we should do. And what you find is that began with David being unprepared for this this event. And for some reason... He's scared to act. Now, my, my suspicion is that his motivation wasn't the emotion of fear as much as it was the emotion of grief. But his emotion of grief, he was furious about what happened with Amnon and Tamar, but he does nothing about it. And he's angry and grieved about what has happened to Amnon when Absalom kills him, but he does nothing about it. And he wants to restore Absalom to to good grace with the family, but ultimately he does nothing about it. And we know the story ends up with Absalom coming and yanking the throne away from David for a short period of time, and then through intrigue and political playing, David is able to get the throne back, and I think probably by the the grace and the, the movements of God, David gets the throne back from Absalom. But it, it's a horrific Story, the whole thing, beginning with Absalom and Tamar, ending with the death of, or excuse me, Amnon and Tamar, and ending with the death of Absalom, and just all the grief that went along with it, and the lack of respect that now the people had for David because of his inability to act and his, his willingness to just abdicate the throne and, and, and just sit back. And, and you just look at all of that and you go, this is wrong. And it all began because David wasn't willing to act. See, the truth is, that's kind of how temptations go. Temptations, I like to view, are warnings for us regarding sin. I I, I tend to view temptations the same way God speaks of them when he speaks to Cain. Cain's angry about his brother, about his brother's sacrifice being more acceptable than his. And God comes and confronts Cain and says, hey, what's going on here? And ultimately, God's response to Cain is, sin is crouching at your door. That's what temptations are. Temptations are warning for us that sin is about to happen if we don't do something. And so we got to learn to stop sin at temptation. 
The way to do that is maybe, in some cases, controlling your desires. Controlling your desires. I, I know that sounds odd because desires are desires. They, they're just, oftentimes they're natural things to want. If I'm hungry, that's a natural thing. I've, several of y'all know I'm on a diet right now, going horribly, but I'm on a diet right now. And one of the things I've learned as I've, I've researched and studied dieting and such like that is one of the best things you can do, take, this is taking hair advice from a bald man, by the way, because I'm not losing weight at all. But, you know, here, here is the, here the, the, the premise of the, of the current diet that I'm on. It's that instead of eating 10 raisins, eat 10 grapes. You take out the the sugar-added issue. Ultimately, a raisin is essentially a grape, right? Well, eat 10 grapes. That will leave you fuller than eating 10 raisins. So if you have to choose between two equitable things, eat the thing that makes you feel more full so that you're less desirous of food later. That's the premise. Again, I'm a snacker, so it's killing me. But... Here, I mean, that, that's the idea. Figure out how you can eliminate the desire, and then you're less likely to break the diet or break the, break the, 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 the task at which you have put your hand to. It's the same thing when it comes to temptation to sin. Eliminate the desire. I gave you all the illustration on Wednesday night of, of back when I used to, to use words I shouldn't use. And the best way I found to get rid of the, 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 to speak out cuss words or words I shouldn't use was to quit hearing those words. And when I quit hearing those words, those words no longer flew through my brain. And therefore, I was less likely to say those words because they weren't in, in my heart. The same kind of thing. If you can eliminate the desire for sin... You've eliminated the temptation. Sometimes if you can't do that, you've got to take the other route, which is eliminate the opportunity for sin. If, if you know you, you sin under certain circumstances, don't find yourself in those circumstances. If you know you struggle with alcoholism, don't go to the bar, don't go to a restaurant that serves alcohol, just... Don't give yourself the opportunity to have alcohol in the first place. And so ultimately, that, that's the way you need to control your, your, your temptation. Fix it in one way or the other. James is very clear. It's opportunity plus desire. Put those together, you have temptation. Get rid of opportunity or you get rid of desire, you no longer have it. Con and I had gone to a concert on Thursday night, and the guy that was standing next to us uh, was wearing a jacket because it was kind of rainy and cold that night. And uh, he, he kind of elbows me in the back, and I turn and look at him. He goes, hey, man, you want beer? He had like three beers in each pocket. Like he, he was loaded down, ready to, uh, no, thank you. No, 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 really, I, I got extra. You want beer? Like, no, no, I, I, don't, I don't want a beer. Uh, oh, oh, come on, man. Uh, I, plenty. Come on, you, you can have some. No. His, his conclusion was, you must be the driver. Yeah, that, that was the only thing that made sense to him. That, uh, I have no desire to drink beer. It wasn't tempting in the least. 
It wasn't something I wanted to to deal with. It wasn't something I wanted to have. And so it was easy to say no to it. Now, had he said, hey, man, I got an extra bowl of ice cream in my pocket, (laughs) I might have had a problem. Except ice cream in a pocket doesn't sound very appealing now that I think about it. Eliminate either the opportunity or the desire. You know, I've learned if we have no ice cream in the house and I don't go to a restaurant that serves ice cream, I don't really deal with the temptation to eat ice cream. It's that simple. And this works when it comes to dealing with the temptations for sin, too. I don't know what temptation it is that you struggle with, but I'm telling you, if you will figure out What is it that I desire and when is it that I have the opportunities to give in to that desire and you eliminate one or the other, you have solved 90% of your problem. That's how to master temptation. Sin can be stopped sometimes by looking at the outcomes. You know, I wonder, in David's case, at what point did he ever stop and say, you know, if I do this, I'm... I'm causing all sorts of trouble for all sorts of people. I mean, his servant made it clear. You know the woman, you know her dad, you know her husband, and he didn't say, and you know her grandfather. And Uriah's father was also one of the mighty men, so you know her father-in-law. You know everyone in her family. That's essentially what the servant says. You, You wonder why he didn't go... Oh, this is a bad idea. Let me go to the other side of the palace roof and maybe I'll find someone over there. I don't know. If he had just said, what's going to be the outcome of this? What's going to be that, you know, if, if I do this, I'm hurting her, myself, my God, her husband, her father-in-law, her grandfather... Her father, I I mean, I'm hurting so many people if I give in to this temptation. You know, if we would think that way, if we would put these temptations in perspective as to what they lead to, it would help us make better decisions. Sin can be stopped by purposeful preparation. Years ago, I was reading a book called The Miracle Morning. It was about getting up and having a productive morning and starting your day right and those sorts of things. And one of the things that it said is the best thing you can do is get a glass of water and put it next to your bed in the morning. I mean, in in the evening. So that the first thing you do when you get up in the morning is you down an entire glass of water. It, It gives you energy the same way coffee does. A lot of people actually get energized not by the caffeine of coffee, but by the hydration of coffee. And so it was saying one of the healthiest things you can do is just down that big glass of water first thing in the morning uh, when you get up. Well, I'm going to be honest. I've never done that. Now, I go grab my coffee every morning. But, you know, the reason I grab my coffee every morning is because I set my coffee on a timer the night before because... That way I can grab it first thing, right? Like I can smell it when I wake up in the morning and I'm good to go. Like I'm, I'm ready to get up and start my day at 5 in the morning. 
that purposeful preparation eliminates the temptation or at least lessens the temptation to roll back over. Same thing works with sin. If you can learn to prepare yourself purposely for facing sin, think about, okay, I know I'm going to have to see this person at work tomorrow, and I know they're going to say something rude. What do I do about it? And decide that when you're not in the heat of the moment in order to help yourself make the right decision when you are in the heat of the moment. It can make all the difference in in facing off with temptations that the devil's going to put in your way. Sin can be stopped by just finding yourself seeking God's will entirely. You know, and I'm convinced of this, every sin we commit, we commit because of selfishness. Every single one. And and you can argue, well, no, but sometimes I, I, I'm, what if I told a lie to protect my family? That means you're not trusting God to protect your family and you're thinking you have to do it yourself, which is selfish. Every sin we commit, we commit from selfishness. So every sin we commit could be eliminated by seeking God's will. Sin can be stopped by crafting a heart for God. It's that simple. Uh, This goes along with the last one, but if if I fill my heart with what God wants and thoughts of God and thoughts of God and thoughts of how God wants me, and, and my heart entirely belongs to a God who has given me a standard for living, and that's what I want to do, it eliminates temptations. I, I mean, I'll, I'll give you a instance. My heart belongs to my wife. You know how I know that my heart belongs to my wife? Because it doesn't belong to any other woman. It just doesn't. I, I, I have no, uh, you know, and, and I know there's the whole take heed lest, you know, he who stands lest he fall. I, I, I have no desire for another woman. I've told her multiple times, I can't even fathom if if she weren't here, me seeking another woman later. That might change at that point. But while my wife is alive, she is my life. That has eliminated every other temptation in in that realm of thinking. And if my heart truly belonged to my God, wouldn't it do the same thing? Practical steps for you today, real quick. One is know yourself and your tendencies. This is probably the very hardest part of overcoming temptation and mastering them is being honest with yourself about what your temptations are. We like to view ourselves righteously. We like to see ourselves as better than we really are. That doesn't mean we don't sometimes beat ourselves up and criticize ourselves about certain things. But as a whole, we tend nature is to be dishonest with ourselves about the things we struggle with. Or we like 
Even if we know we struggle with something, we like to argue that it's not as big of a struggle as it really is, that we really do have a handle on it. We just have weak moments. Let me tell you, if you've got weak moments, you've got a problem that needs to be fixed. And we all have weak moments about certain things. Now, if we were to go around this room and take up a list of what are the things that we struggle with, we would have many different lists, many different ideas, many different things that, that, you know, our struggles are individual, they are personal. But you need to know what they are. Know what your tendencies are. One of the best illustrations I know of this is when it comes to dieting. I know that my tendency has been over the years to sit down at night and snack. I love a good evening snack. One of the reasons I love a good evening snack is because I'm tired by that point after getting up between 4.30 and 5 in the morning and, and we're still sitting there at 10.30, 11 o'clock at night. I'm tired, so I eat to stay awake. I know that about myself. So, you know, it's real easy for me to avoid the evening snack if I just go to bed earlier. That makes life a lot easier. If I know my tendency, if I know myself well enough to know where my weakness is, to know where my struggle is, it helps me. If I can pay attention to the times in which I am weakest, I can eliminate those opportunities. I've counseled people through uh, internet pornography addictions and things like that. And one of the things I always have this conversation with them is, when? When is it that you struggle? Because we, we don't struggle when the opportunity's not there. We don't struggle when we're distracted by other things. If I'm at work, I might not struggle, but if I'm at home by myself, I might. And so if I know that, maybe I can take some steps to eliminate those opportunities, those circumstances, those times, those situations in which I know I'm going to struggle. So it might be I leave my phone in my car and I don't touch it again until the morning when I'm heading to work because that allows that opportunity to go away. Or if I'm married, I give my phone to my wife so that I don't have the opportunity. I put the computer in a common space in my house so that there's not the opportunity in order to, to have that private time on the computer. If, if I know that I struggle with lust, don't watch movies filled with things that I'm going to lust about. Don't watch TV shows with people barely dressed. If I know that I struggle with lying, be bluntly and blatantly honest about everything. Then you're eliminating the opportunities where you think you might get away with those lies. It doesn't matter what the temptation is. Temptations tend to attack us at habitual moments. If you know yourself and pay attention to that, you can eliminate some of your problems. Control your appetites. I've always thought buffet is the funniest word there. That's why I put it up there. You know, buffet your appetite. But anyway, the, uh, you know, you've got control your appetites. Uh, eliminate 
those desires, those opportunities. That's what we've talked about several times through this lesson already. If we would just recognize that we have appetites that are there and that we need to control them by either eliminating the desire or the opportunity, we'll go a long way. Think in long-term consequences. If I tell this lie, how many more times will I have to lie to hold it up? If I say this thing about this other person, is it going to get back to them and is it going to hurt our relationship down the road? If I choose to do nothing about this, this situation going on in my family, how deep and destructive can this relationship get? Start thinking of what the long-term consequences are for the decisions that we make. And it can make a big difference in the way that we make our decisions. This is a big one, I think, sometimes for many of us. Seek what is best instead of what is acceptable. I could do a whole lesson on this, but I don't have time to do that. So I'm going to sum it up real fast. We tend to define decisions by bad and good, And that is wrong. That is bad. Decisions come in a wide range. There's the worst decision, a worst decision, a bad decision, a neutral decision, an acceptable decision, a good decision, a better decision, an even better decision, a best decision. Do do you see how that works? I mean, if you're really honest with yourself and you're struggling with making a decision, realize there's more than just one or the other. There's more than just bad or good. Oftentimes, there is a myriad of good choices. And what we should seek to do as God's people and God's children is choose the best decision, not just what is acceptable. That eliminates so many of our sins and temptations because... We're no longer doing what is just acceptable. Well, this isn't bad, so I can do it. No, not according to James. To him who knows what is good and does not do it, it is sin. I would even go so far as to interpret that as to him who knows what is better or best, do that. Because by choosing what is best, we eliminate a lot of trouble. Another one, keep those temptations in perspective. I, why is a temporary pleasure worth the eternal consequences? Why is temporary ease worth a greater difficulty down the road? If we know that doing this thing is going to have consequences, why? Why engage in it? Why even think, okay, well, you know, I, I, I can get away with this. This isn't so bad. No. For you it is. Because if you know it's kind of bad, then it is really bad because it has eternal consequences. So choose what is best and keep those decisions in perspective. And I would argue this one too just as we wrap up, is, is this. I wonder what would have happened if David would have listened to that servant 
okay, yeah, that's Bathsheba. I know her dad. I know her father-in-law. I know her grandfather. Her grandfather is my most trusted advisor. Let me go talk to him. You think he would have committed that sin with Bathsheba? No. If he would have talked to the people he trusted most, they would have helped him avoid a very damning and consequential decision in his life. And brothers and sisters, we are in a room full of people that we can trust and who will lead us the right direction. So I encourage you, look around and decide, okay, I know this person loves me and they will help me see through my difficult decisions. I'm going to call them next time. I've got to tell you right now, if you were to call me, and I actually pick up the phone because that doesn't always happen, but if you were to call me and you said, Adam, I'm struggling with this, I'm going to make time for you. I'm going to make time for you. Because we shouldn't need to struggle alone. Because it's when we struggle alone that we're more likely to give in to what makes life easier or what makes things temporarily pleasant. And when somebody that we trust, that we know that loves us, is willing to say, no, no, Adam, if you do this, think about what's going to happen. Or, no, no, Adam, this is wrong because of this passage of Scripture. Or, Adam, uh, you know, that's not necessarily wrong, but is that the best decision you can make? If I had people doing that for me, that would make life so much easier to not feel like I'm going through all these temptations by myself. So please, find someone you trust who can hold you accountable and know that God will too. Pray about it. Again, when David's case, could you imagine if David sat down and prayed to God when it came to what Amnon had done and said, God, I don't want to have him killed, but what should I do? And God would have sent Nathan the prophet to him and said, hey, here's the answer. That would have been so much better than what actually happened. And we need to be those who are willing to face our temptation and master them. You might be tempted right now to do nothing. You know, here, I, I, I think, in some ways, thrown down the gauntlet. You know, here, we, we've, we've, we face life, and we face temptations, and we face sin. How are you doing with that? And probably, I, I would dare say, each one of us has something we struggle with, something we, that we, we fight, something that we, we're facing alone. And so I'm going to throw the challenge out to you that you don't have to face it alone. We, we, every week, give the opportunity for somebody to come forward and ask for prayers and to share their life and to face temptations together so that we can be better and more pleasing to our God. And I, that, that invitation is out for you today. If you're facing something that, that you know you could use help with, you're probably tempted to stay in your seat, but today's the opportunity to get that help. Or maybe, maybe you're not a child of God at all, and you've been facing that. You've been struggling with that. You've been thinking about that. What should I do? Let me tell you, 
Commit yourself to Christ. Come to him. Belong to him. And, and you're going to be tempted to do nothing. You're going to be tempted to just stay where you are because that's easier. But I tell you, there's nothing better than making a decision to follow Christ and to let him be Lord of your life and to let him be in control and to have those sins washed away in baptism. So I, I offer this invitation to you today. If you need the help and the prayers and the guidance and the accountability that a, a group of godly people can provide for you, or if you need to belong to Christ, today's the day to make that decision. If you need to make that decision, come forward and let us help you as we stand and sing this. Thanks for listening and studying God's word with us. We want to help you draw closer to Jesus as your Lord. If you feel some need as a result of today's message, whether that be a need to seek God's salvation or you are just in the need of prayers, please reach out to us. You can find out more about us, including contact information at edwardslakechurch.org. If you want to continue to open God's word with us, please check out other sermons on our podcast or come visit with us at Edwards Lake Church anytime you can. Thanks again, and we pray God's blessings for you.